Welcome to the Audition Hacker Podcast. My name is Rob Knopper. I'm a percussionist in the Metropolitan Opera, and my goal is to help you learn to prepare and win an audition quicker and easier than I did. Today's podcast is all about preventing injury. I interviewed Janet Horvath, and she'll help you understand how to warm up, how to prevent injury during long practice sessions, how to incorporate breaks, how to manage and minimize tension, and more. So as you're listening to this, I am in the middle of waiting for my daughter Lily to be born. This episode is coming out right around due date, so we're either rushing to the hospital or we're there right now, or we might be just waiting around, mildly panicked at home for the big event. Anyway, I pre-recorded this, and I'm trying to pre-record a couple more so that they can keep coming out even while I take a couple weeks off. We'll start today's episode with answering our listener-submitted question. So today's question is from Diego. Hey, Rob. Why would you recommend us to use to record ourselves on the practice room? Thank you. That is a great question, Diego, and I really appreciate you asking that because it's a little bit uh, of a non-traditional type of practice. If you've never recorded yourself, you don't really know what it's like, and it maybe doesn't really make sense why you'd do it. I know the first few times I recorded myself, my teacher told me I should try it. I recorded myself, I knew I didn't play well, and then I'd listen back to my recording and I would confirm to myself, yeah, it didn't sound good, I didn't play well. And then I figured, well, what's the point of listening to that? I should just go get better so that next time I record, it sounds better. The thing is, recording yourself is actually really incredibly effective as a tool in practicing. While you're doing traditional practice, what I call traditional practice, which is just you practicing in a room with your instrument in the music stand, maybe with a metronome, if you're doing that kind of practice, your brain is preoccupied. You're thinking about the execution and you're thinking about analyzing how you sound both at the same time. If I'm multitasking by thinking about playing and listening at the same time, I'm not doing either one as well. I'm not putting all my focus into the art of execution, thinking about how my hands should move, thinking about the instructions that I give myself in order to play better. And I'm also not doing my very best in terms of analyzing how it sounds. First of all, my ear is a foot away from the instrument, which is not how the listener hears me. But also, I'm not really deeply listening to all the problems that might exist within my playing. And actually, if you haven't listened back to yourself very much, you might not know just how much detail you can hear if you're listening back to a recording of yourself. All that self-recording really does is it forces you to separate those activities, the activity of playing and the activity of listening. It's very effective, and how you can do it is just place a microphone, preferably at a distance from you so that you can imitate the distance that a listener will be sitting when they hear you. Play, stop the recording, and then listen back and really try to analyze it. You know, listen back repetitively if you need to, write a list of things that you want to fix, and then play again, listen back again, play again, listen back again. I like to go through this repetitive workflow, which is actually really intense mentally. It takes a lot of brain power. And I like to use it as a tool to solve problems. You know, just solve one problem after the next, after the next, after the next, until there's no problems left. So I really do recommend doing some self-recording and seeing how it can improve your playing. Thanks again, Diego, for the question. And if you want to ask a question that I can answer on a future episode, just go to robnopper.com slash ask. 
All right, preventing injury. So I have to give a little disclaimer here. I am not somebody who's an expert at this. I have never really experienced a debilitating injury. I know I'm really lucky for whatever reason. I am somebody who plays with a lot of repetition. You know, I do a lot of repetitive practice. Those of you who have worked with me know I do something called Rome, which is a very intense type of repetitive practice. I'm playing at tempo. I'm playing very small amounts of music at once and hours and hours go by where all I'm doing is repeating just a few notes at a time. I know that a lot of percussionists through repetitive practice have experienced injury and I feel so lucky that I haven't had to experience that, but I wanted to find a way to actually help those of you, not only percussionists, but any musician who have experienced injury or who are worried about injury to find ways of practicing that are more likely to prevent injury. So ways to warm up, ways to actually learn notes, information on taking breaks, you know, how to manage and minimize tension. Injury is really prevalent among musicians. I mean, I just saw an article. Uh, an article was just sent to me written by Parker Olson, who's a percussionist in Boston, who had a, an experience having an injury. And he got together with a couple of his teachers, Dan Bausch in the Boston Symphony and Matt McKay in the Boston Symphony, all of whom have had injuries over the past few years. And they have all found ways to treat their injuries and practice differently. And Parker actually wrote a big write-up about injury and, and his experience and some interviews with them. You should check it out if you want to. You can get to it by going to parkerolsonpercussion.com and then clicking into the articles area. But there's somebody who's an expert at helping musicians learn to practice in a way that makes it less likely to have an injury and less likely to have an intense injury. Her name is Janet Horvath. She is the former associate cellist of the Minnesota Orchestra. She wrote a book called Playing Less Hurt, which is about this exact topic. I recently brought her into my inner circle program so that my students could learn from her, you know, strategies to practice better. And I was lucky enough to talk her into doing a little podcast interview for you so that you could learn some of her strategies. Now, if you want to learn and study the audition preparation process that I use to win my Met Opera audition, you can go ahead and download my audition cheat sheet at robnopper.com slash audition cheat sheet. So without further ado, let's go to the interview. My guest today is the former associate principal cellist of the Minnesota Orchestra from 1980 to 2012. She's an injury prevention specialist, and she wrote the book Playing Less Hurt. And uh, thank you so much for being with us, uh, Janet Horvath. Thank you for inviting me. I want to dig into the, you know, the injury prevention um, discussion a little bit. But before we do that, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about your audition history? This is an audition podcast after all. You know, uh, tell us about the journey that led you to your spot in the Minnesota Orchestra. Well, I have two hilarious stories, uh, but I suppose all of us do. <laughs> Uh, because every audition is different, of course. So I graduated from um, Indiana University and wanted to continue my close contact with my great teacher, Yana Starker, and some of my friends who I was playing chamber music with. So I went to Aspen and started playing for a lot of different conductors, and many of them... Um, had openings in principal places. And um, so one of them happened to be the Indianapolis symphony conductor at the time. And so he had me come to his chalet, whatever, and audition as, as 
I think 30 or 40 other people did, I found out. But anyway, I, I was playing a principal in one of the chamber orchestra concerts, and I had a big solo. And he jumped up on the stage after the concert and said, I want you. And I thought, well, great, you know, terrific. It was associate principal cello of the Indianapolis Symphony. And I was excited. I was preparing for a competition at the time. And he said, I want you and, you know, whatever, um, we'll discuss it. So several weeks went by as Aspen finished up and I had, didn't hear from them. And meanwhile, I had talk, called my family, my parents, my father was a cellist in the Toronto Symphony for 38 years. He says, where's contract? Janet came, where's the contract? I said, well, dad, come on, you know, in front of everybody, he said, I, you wanted me. Um, so I, at the end of Aspen, ended up calling the manager and he said, we're having auditions on such and such a date. And this is the list. And you should, you know, uh, pay your fee and come, you know. And I thought, oh, heck, I said, okay, tell me the list. I wrote it down. I said, could you please have John Nelson call me? So not 20 minutes later, John Nelson calls me and he said, well, we're going to have auditions as a formality. And, you know, if you go to this competition and win something, it'll just be a, a feather in your cap and we'll have auditions and, you know, and I'm going, <laughs> I was crying to Starker and Zaranozova and these people saying, well, you know, looks like they're holding auditions. looks like I don't have the job officially. My father was right. Darn. Um, so I gave up going to the competition and went to the audition and was ready to play everything upside down, backwards, shorter, longer, louder, softer. So whatever they asked me, I was ready to do. And I did, I played, I thought a really good audition. Um, and afterwards I'm waiting and I'm waiting and waiting. No, you know, the principal cello comes down and congratulates me and said, well, good luck. I thought, good luck. What do you mean? You know, and um, that was it. And I was waited some more and I thought, well, don't, I guess I don't have a job. Like, I don't know. And then finally, John Nelson comes down and he says, well, there is no doubt you would have the job, right? You know, so that was Indianapolis. Wow. They really put you through the ringer there. <laughs> yeah. So I played there two years as associate and then saw that. Minnesota Orchestra had this opening and I knew it was a great orchestra. I knew it was a lovely city. I knew it was cold, but um, I decided that I, that sounded really good. So they had had a bunch of auditions already and decided to invite associate principal cellos from other orchestra from slightly lesser orchestras to come and audition as a private audition. So they invited me and I said, well, what's the list? <laughs> and they told me, and I, I had a week and I thought, well, okay, I'll try it. So I bombed it. I was behind the screen and there was one excerpt that I missed shifts and I missed, you know, everything, you know, whatever. And afterwards, the personnel manager, he loves to tell, he loved to tell this story, came to me and said, you know, I don't think you're ready for this orchestra. 
And I said, oh, yes, I am. You know, and then I thought, oh, what have I done? Because I had every intention of preparing properly and coming again to audition for it, you know, and really working to prepare. So I, so I thought I ruined my chances by shooting off my mouth, but I did go back. Um, at the time, I was in the middle of a music from Marlboro tour. I had been at Marlboro and selected. And so the personnel manager called Frank Solomon and said, you know, we're having this audition. Frank Solomon said, you know what? Um, she's in the middle of this tour. And the personnel manager said, well, you know, she already auditioned and didn't, she bombed it. So I don't know if we're going to make it any kind of accommodation. And so neither of them did. And so I had to rehearse in New York in the morning, a couple hours. I flew in the afternoon. I played three or four times in the evening in Minnesota. I didn't hear until two in the morning. Those were the days when they just went on and on that I got, I did get the job and I was on the plane by seven in the morning the next day for concerts in New York. And I cried my eyes out the whole way on the airplane that I got this job. Tears of joy. Here here I am, you know, many, many years later. Um, Yeah. So two very odd and you got to show your dad the signed contract eventually for both. <laughs> yes. I'm sure he was very excited about that. They were excited. They were really excited when I got this job here in Minnesota. So your your father was a uh, musician in the, you said the Toronto Symphony. And was your mother a musician too? Yes, actually. My mother was a wonderful piano teacher of little teeny, teeny kids. Yeah, I see. So, um, and then you joined the Minnesota Orchestra. And when that you got interested in injury prevention? Well, I myself was one of the walking wounded. Um, When I became a Starker student at Indiana University, um, he was formidable. And I wanted to be the best Starker student who ever lived. Um, And he often was still playing concertizing all over the world. So he chose students that he felt could really um, incorporate a lot of information quickly and then be on their own during the time that he was on tour. And so I w- when he was in town, we would have three lessons a week and it would be different repertoire every time. And, w- and then he would be gone for three, four, five weeks. So I practiced and I practiced and I practiced and I didn't want to lose my practice room of course and so I practiced and I was lonely and away from home for the first time so I practiced and I ignored the pain that started happening I thought okay you know can't be hurting no it's no pain no gain right Um, maybe if I play through the pain I'll be a better musician which I couldn't have been more wrong until the point that I couldn't hold a knife and fork or turn a doorknob or wash my hair, um, let alone play the cello. And so I had what we call blooming tinnitus. <laughs> um, but I know now what it's a repetitive strain injury, tendinitis. Um, it was uh, very painful. Um, and I had let it go way beyond what I think I recommend now, of course, 
Um, your body's trying to tell you something if something hurts. So when Starker came back into town, I, I often say he hid his horror quite well. And I don't think he'd ever had somebody that, first of all, I'm tiny and I have little hands. Um, he, he just started me totally over from scratch to eliminate all tensions and any kind of strain, uh, good posture, good habits, good practice habits. And so I, I re- lived to tell the tale, basically. I thought my life was over at the time. I, I you know, didn't think I would ever play again. I didn't think that I could do anything else. You know, music was my life. So when I got the job here, there were at least half a dozen people sidelined. And I thought, okay, you know, we have to do something about this. And one thing led to another. And I approached the University of Minnesota and they had uh, the ability to put together a a conference, and we ended up having the first national conference on the subject. More than 500 people came, uh, representing all the conservatories and orchestras in the country. And it was really the first time that musicians addressed doctors, and not only doctors addressing us, but musicians addressing them for them to understand our jargon, you know, to say like, you know, it really hurts when I do a down bow staccato or whatever it is. You know, um, it was a really great experience. So after that, my phone started ringing off the hook and people yeah. were making a beeline to to me. And I, you know, had some information scattered all over the house, you know, on papers. And finally, I wrote my book in self-defense, basically. <laughs> Just um, to get out in front of the requests. Yeah. And, and to have the information in... Stu, you know, layman's terms, um, it's not only for students and teachers and musicians, but it's also really good for uh, healthcare professionals to know what our strings are. And they, they can't believe it. You know, I would often perform, you know, do lectures where I would play the cello along with the recording and they wouldn't believe how many repetitions that there were and uh, the strains and the postures and the awkward positions sometimes on stage. So when you were revamping your technique with uh, your professor, after that, did you feel like you could practice as much as you wanted? And because you had a new technique, it was less prone to injury? Or at that time, did you also cut down on the amount of practicing itself? I didn't cut down, but I increased a lot of break time and different kinds of moves. I call them my onstage tricks, which hopefully we can get to a little later, but um, little mini breaks. And also I often say I'm not a genius, but I have this total awareness now of my body and what feels tight, what feels tense. And I am constantly vigilant about, okay, how can I make this easier for myself? How can I make this flow more? Obviously, we want to express our music. And if we're tight or tense, uh, that doesn't allow your soul, your musicality to flow to the audience. Um, So the most important thing was my attitude to how I produced my, my sound. 
And so I, I was vigilant about my posture. I wouldn't, you know, I was careful about getting into bad habits, which we all do. We get tired or, or lazy or we, you know, get involved in a Brahm Sonata. We love so much that we lose track of time. Um, no, 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 no. We're disciplined people. So we can absolutely be disciplined about how we approach our instrument physically. I'm, I was a nutcase about warming up and cooling down. I was also always very careful about break time. Yeah, cool. I want to get a little deeper into those. So like the three areas that you mentioned, uh, warm-ups, break times, and then onstage tricks. I'd love to hear just some tips in each of those areas that musicians can um, can try to incorporate to prevent injuries. Okay, the most important thing with break time is for you to know that now we do have specialists in performing arts medicine, and they have determined that you can do a very um, taxing physical activity, but if you take 10 minutes per hour of total break time, you can continue, you can regain almost 90% of your, your muscle um, ability to maintain that um, strenuous activity. Um, know that also we have to examine the static part of it. So holding positions is harder on your body than actually playing. I would compare it to walking. Walking is much easier because there's a, a flow of oxygen and air is coming in and you're exchanging the blood and everything. Um, walking is easier than standing still, standing in a line. I'm sure some of you have found that. So similarly, playing uh, you know quick passages is much easier actually than holding your arms at or above shoulder height without letting them down, for example, or holding a posture. So the static portion of whatever you're doing is much more strenuous and, and something you should really watch um, more, even more than, you know, the fast playing. You're only not straining your body when you're lying down, when you're asleep. Other, other times there's always a static component to your playing. So, not only should you take 10 minutes per hour of time, but I, I would often look across the stage and see that people never let, put their arms down, never, you know, let their arms rest for even a bar. So it's a really good idea to, you know, especially if you're a violinist or violist or any of us, we all hold our arms up to play our instruments, that we let them hang down, that we do a big shoulder roll that we wiggle, that I, and you can wiggle and move on stage without it being obtrusive. Um, you can, you know, rock your hips and your lumbar. You can, you know, put one arm behind you on a chair. You can certainly reach back and open your pectoral muscles, you know, like, you know, to do the opposite of what you typically do at the instrument is always a good thing. Sorry, listeners can't see us right now, but we're both doing quite a bit of wiggling and, and moving around on the video. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I used to get yelled at for that. You know, when I was uh, in in school, you you move too much, you wiggle too much. And I'm not talking about like 
massive movements. They're really little movements. You can do circles with your thumbs. You can do circles with your wrists. You can obviously circles with your shoulders. You can look to the left and right. And it looks like you're saying, oh, those, you know, those flute players sound great today. You know, um, any, any little thing to keep the tension from building up helps. So warming up, we have for a long time resisted the idea that we're athletes. We don't want to be considered jocks by any stretch of the imagination, but we are the Olympic athletes of the small muscle groups. And so um, it's not so overtly athletic as say dancing is or football playing, um, but we still need to really be vigilant about warming up. And I mean, first away from the instrument so doing a few stretches, shoulder rolls, this necks, neck things, um, hand, arm movements. There's lots of them in my book. But any, any kind of yoga or running up and down the stairs or doing jumping jacks, anything that's going to get your blood pumping, especially in places where it's cold, like here, <laughs> Minnesota, then at your instrument to start not too high, not too low, not too fast, not too slow. In the middle range of your instrument, triple tonguing and high ranging exercises, not warming up. Dunas on the violin, Cosman on the cello, arpeggios on the piano. Those are not warming up scales even. That's technique building stuff. You need to warm up the larger muscle groups first. And on, in, on string instruments, that would be um, shifts, long shifts. We have to learn how to do them anyway. Um, but really, it's very important to start slowly, not too soft and not too hard and not too loud, not jumping into a Mahler symphony, which a lot of people might do um, who are professionals. I've seen it a lot. Um, and then you can be vigilant about not um, taxing yourself when you're cold, your muscles are tight. So start with, you know, good uh, volume, big muscle group type playing. Um, you're not starting with like stretching or jumping jacks or anything. You're starting with bigger movement playing. I'm starting, I start away from the instrument with jumping oh, okay. jacks or oh, okay. being on a trampoline or running up and down the stairs or going for a swim or whatever activity that you like. Yoga, I do yoga every morning. Boy, I would not function because <laughs> I don't sleep very well. So that really makes a huge difference of doing those moves. Um, never stretching to the point of pain, of course, but moving moving that gets your blood going and then going to your instrument and warming up there. I see. So you're saying when you actually do go to the instrument, you're starting with big playing, you know, big muscle groups, not too loud, but also not soft. And then after 15 minutes of that, then you can go do the technical work that is building your, right. your playing abilities. Yeah. Mm, the technique building stuff is taxing. So we, we don't want to just start right off with that stuff. I wanted to just ask one follow-up about the breaks. Um, what should you do during your breaks? Should you be moving around or, you know, do you read a book? Like what is, what is healthy to do during a break? 
Well, cellists for sure should get up and violinists for sure should sit down. Um, Percussionists should sit down. Bass players should stand up. I mean, you know, do something that's different. If you don't want to break your concentration, I get that totally. Um, You don't have to leave the room necessarily, but you could, you know, walk around the room. You could sing your part. You can visualize your part. You can work on your memory. There's a lot of things that you can do that aren't taxing your body physically, that is still continuing your practice if you need to. And if you really need to, for mental reasons, to take a total break, sure, go get a glass of water for, you know, for sure. Um, Walk around the building or the house and, you know, read, yeah, read something or take some deep breaths, do some yoga moves, anything that's going to refresh you. That's a good thing. And then, so that's kind of like uh, within the day's practice session, um, those breaks. But then do you have like, do you take a, do you recommend that musicians take a break at the end of the week, like take a day off? And then should they take multiple days off at the end of the month? Or, you know, do you have any guidelines about uh, bigger picture breaks? That's a very good question. Because when I was trying to be the best cellist I could be, of course, I couldn't imagine taking a day off. And I often, once you get in a professional orchestra, your day off is your only day to learn next week's music. Um, And a lot of people forget about the cumulative amount of playing with your own practice and the rehearsals that you do. And that's a lot of time at your instrument. So I do recommend a day off a week. You'll find you, that you're much looser on Monday if you've taken Sunday off. And um, you can, right. as I said, do mental things. You're not going to be more sluggish, which was always a worry, you know. But if you strain your muscles, you will be. If they're tired, you will be um, taxing your muscles. So I do recommend a day off a week. I also recommend, um, you know, orchestra. If you're in an orchestra like Minnesota, where after COVID, of course, where it's 52 week seasons, by May, everybody's falling like flies, you know. Um, we've, we've only had a couple weeks off, maybe over the holidays, and we're playing humongous repertoire week after week. So I would try to take a whole month off when we had August off, but then you can't just jump back into the full season, a double rehearsal. You need to take, I would always take at least, if I have a month off, I'd take 10 days to get back in shape. Just to ease back into it little by little. Very, very critical. If you jump back into it, that's when I see a lot of people who have hurt themselves or Conversely, for for younger people who are, you know, big fish in a little pond in their cities, and they're used to playing two hours every other day, and then they go to some summer festival where they're playing five, six hours every day. And in those cases, you really need to spend a couple of weeks building up your stamina so that you can um, be able to play a lot more than you're used to 
as long as you're very careful about your breaks and your wiggling and your warming up and everything. So um, if you approach warming up in this way and taking breaks in this way, does that then mean that repetition is less dangerous? You know, I'm a huge, you know, I'm somebody who does a lot of repetition. Like for all my auditions that I did well in, it was months of completely focusing on repetitive motions, you know, over and over and over. Um, Are those, is that ever safe to do that much repetition? Or is that also something you should cut down on? Never safe. No, Mm. it's not. Um, I believe in having to do things over and over for an audition. Sure, you do. I have um, always written up a schedule for myself So initially, when you're maybe a couple months out or three months out, you do a three-day plan so that you try to get through all the repertoire. It's usually a lot of stuff. And I balance something something easier with something harder. Or some Mozart against Strauss, you know, put Mozart in one list and Strauss in another list, put, um, you know, something slow that is singing and put something very taxing in another list so that you're sure you're alternating your repertoire and it's much safer to repeat a rep a, song, a passage that's repetitive later in the day than go on the one excerpt for an hour or two because you're taxing the same muscles and if you alternate your repertoire you are using different muscle groups. And that's really important. I see. So you can do a little bit of the repetition as long as you're alternating or just allowing yourself to yeah, do something else in an alternating kind of way. Right. And it's not only the repetition, but anything with chords, anything with um, stretches, anything that's in 29th position on the violin or, you know, or anything that's taxing that's not neutral, that's not normal for your body, you limit it to 10, 15 minutes, go to something else and come back to it. And it'll be fresher in your mind and easier on your body to to alternate your repertoire and to get out of positions that are a strain as soon as you can. So releasing is really, really critical and you'll have me harping on that later on. Um, but it's the lifting that's important. It's the letting go that creates a lightningly fast technique. Um, and um, what what else were we talking about? Um, um, well, we were talking about, um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask was, uh, you mentioned onstage tricks. And I'm not sure if you already went over that with the wiggling, but do you have other kinds of tricks that would be useful? Lots of them. I mean, for example, when I take a bow, I will hold the cello with one one hand and put my other arm behind my back so that my shoulder and my pectoral is stretched out at least on one side. You know, I'll squeeze my buttocks. I'll, you know, roll my shoulders when you're seated, you can do one big shoulder shrug or roll. Um, you know, well, the conductor said something weird. I don't know. You know, um, just um, a little movement anytime you can is really important. 
And again, doing the opposite of what you normally would do. Everything in our hands are downward gripping instruments. I don't advise gripping, but holding. Um, But if you can let go, move your hands, move your fingers, move your thumb, stretch up your uh, hand a little bit back, your arm away from you um, so that you're doing most motions that are different than what you are doing when you're playing and any little bit helps. Right. I wanted to uh, come clean about something I do. I, I feel like it might be wrong, but you can tell me, you know, whether it is or not. Sometimes if I'm playing and I feel myself, you know, I need to move or I need, I'm getting a little tight or something. I'll put down the sticks and I'll stretch my hands, you know, back and then forward, probably a little too much, you know, admittedly. Um, and I'll also crack my knuckles. I'm, I'm a big knuckle cracker. Are either of those things, things I should be avoiding? Well, knuckle cracking isn't great to be doing because it puts strain on your joints. Um, and, and it gets to be a habit. Some of those stretches are okay to do that you just mentioned. As long as you're not quote unquote, double jointed. Um, so a lot of people are selected to play instruments because they they seem so loose and they seem so easily malleable to doing stuff. But in the long run, um, people who are in performing arts medicine are are realizing now that those people may be more vulnerable because in order to keep fingers round and those people who are double jointed, it's called joint laxity, their knuckles or whatever would collapse and their teacher would yell at them, keep your fingers round. And um, so they would need to use more pressure than other people do to just try to maintain that round finger. And that in the long run, that extra pressure will cause joint dysfunction, pain, and possibly you know, injury and arthritis down the road. Um, so People who are really double jointed or joint lax should not, they can easily overstretch. Like you went down, pushing your hand down. Um, That could be very tricky for somebody that is double jointed. And also we're doing everything this way anyway with our hands down. So we want to do the opposite of, of up. And if you grab your whole palm and not just your fingers, um, that is a safer thing to do oh, this way. Okay, um, I see. So when you're when you're stretching your hand backwards, you stretch from the palm rather than stretching just from the tips of the fingers. Ah, I see. Got it. Yeah, and it's okay. very good to to grab your arm, your hands behind your back, and pull your shoulders back, or lean into a corner with one hand at. Imagine a clock, 11 o'clock, and the other hand at 1 o'clock, and you lean forward, or you can do the similar um, stretch on a foam roller, which is uh, a really great tool. It's really dense foam, and you lie on it along your spine, holding up your, um, your head, and it comes to your tailbone, and then you open your arms up, and you lie there, and that is a great thing to do a stretch that you just lie there after some practicing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. Good idea. 
Um, yeah, the, the the practicing as far as repetition, I mean, mindless repetition, I, I won't accuse you of that, but, you know, that can be absolutely not good practice. If you, if you sit there and you analyze, okay, this doesn't sound even, this doesn't sound like a good string crossing. This doesn't sound, maybe the fingering's bad. Maybe the shift is bad. Maybe I'm breathing in the wrong place. Maybe, you know, whatever it is, it's really important to ask those questions and not just repeat because you may be repeating the mistakes and those get reinforced in your brain just as easily and well as figuring out how to make it better without the instrument, you know, using your head. And that's really important. Do you think, I think I know the answer, what you're going to answer, but do you think that musicians who know they're injury prone or who have already experienced injuries should be the ones to do this? Why should people who haven't experienced injuries do these things anyway? There is such a thing as tissue tolerance, and that sounds fancy, but it's when your body hits the wall, and that is different for each person. So it could be much sooner for someone like me who's tiny with small hands and playing a big instrument, or it could be with someone who's uh, you know big and tall and strong and never thought about holding back and plays big and macho um, for their whole career, and then it catches up with you. So that's what um, is one factor, your tissue tolerance, um, where you get to the point that you just can't do it anymore because you've brutalized your muscles for years or decades. So what people need to know is that um, injuries are cumulative. So you can as a teenager or 20 something go party all night and stay up all night and, and play a, you know, double rehearsal the next morning and you can do it. Um, But 10 years later, it catches up with you. And we have very long careers. We're not like the athletes. We're not like the dancers who are done in their thirties or, you know, forties at the most we play from, age eight, 10, whatever, until into our 60s and expect to do that at the same level. And we're disappointed, even horrified when our bodies let us down. And depending on your style and approach to the instrument, that can be sooner or later in some people. And some people um, don't ever get injured. And other people are very injury prone. It could be because of smaller muscle mass, smaller, narrower tunnels, um, you know, just how your body is built, um, what other issues you may have had, uh, uh, you know, in your life. Stress, too, for sure. Um, So it varies from person to person, but it does and can catch up with you. And if you do sustain an injury and you ignore it or you let it... um, you just don't correct it soon enough, it can become chronic and will come plague you like a sprained ankle will come plague you, whereas a broken one doesn't because it you left it alone. How do you uh, recommend that musicians work on playing with less tension? 
Um, do you work with musicians on that? Is that an important element in avoiding injury? Huge. It's huge. I, I, I was very surprised by a couple of people that I was consulting for this week who didn't understand the difference between using your whole back and your whole arms and using weight instead of force. And so even our jargon encourages that, you know, bite, grip, press, you know, um, and the best sound is going to come from you using your breath and your whole torso, your whole back, um, using weight. And even someone who's tiny as I am can make a huge sound if I use my body well. And anytime you start hitting and forcing and grabbing and, you know, then first of all, you're choking the instrument. So you're not allowing it to resonate and you're choking yourself, <laughs> your, your own body. Is this something that musicians should work on in their warm up or in their technique uh, building portion of their practice session? How, how can they incorporate working on tension or relieving, releasing tension into their repertoire work? It should be always. I mean, it should be your mindset at all times. But to begin with, you know, taking deep breaths and then blowing out when you, you know, do a stroke or a, or a down bow or a breath in a, a trumpet or trombone, that you, you make sure that you're using, you know, your shoulders are down and you're using your whole arm weight. Um, there are now actual machines that can help you with that because sometimes we get so used to the awkward posture that we're doing or the tension that we don't even know that we're doing it. We don't even know how to release it because it's that tight. So biofeedback machines um, are really helpful. They can wire you up and it'll show you on a screen when it's very jagged, when you're very tense and when you let go finally of those muscles that are, you have those, um, you know, wired on you that then you can see that the, there's suddenly these lovely, slow, gentle curves. So you can learn if you can't figure out how to do it, you can learn how, which muscles are tight and how to let go of them. Massage can help. Um, self massage can help. You can roll on balls and, or you can get a theracane, which has hard nobules on it that massage these spots, spots, and you'll find, oh, hello, there's a really tight spot I didn't realize, you know. So that that can really help. But you know, one needs to pay attention all the time. Yeah. That's what that's what I do. I see. Should should musicians buy these biofeedback machines and just use them, or is that something you use with a doctor? That's a, yeah, that's a very expensive proposition. Hospitals have them. So if, if you um, go to a physical therapist who's a hand, hand specialist or a you know, performing arts medicine specialist, there are lots of them out there now. Or a sports medicine specialist, if, if there isn't somebody in your town, um, they can really help you learn how to use your body. You know, I often talk about how, 
A string player, for example, uses one side totally differently than the other side. And so you build up muscles on one side that get um, you know, strong, and then the other side are tight and weak. And so that asymmetrical body development can lead to injury. So a personal trainer or some exercise specialist can really help you um, kind of even out your, your two sides to make sure that you're not overtaxing one side than the other. I mean, even something as simple as moving the stand from one side to the other. You know, if you're in an orchestra and you're not a percussionist, you're a, a string player where you're sharing a stand, some people can't see as well on one side than the other after being there for 10, 15 years. So the rotation is really important, and especially at home, to make sure that the stand is straight on so that you're not lifting your head or lowering your head to see the music. And we'll, we'll get into chairs, which is very important, that you're not in a chair that's too low for you or sloping backwards or um, because you're sitting is really important to maintain the lumbar curve in your back so you're not slouching, you're not forward sloping in your shoulders. Right. That's really critical too. Yeah. So there was a couple questions that I wanted to quickly ask that were asked by um, musicians on the Audition Hacker Alliance Facebook group. Jeanette Stenson, she asked, how can you incorporate strength training when you already have a, a heavy performance or practicing schedule? And I also want to add on to that, like, should you be doing things like Alexander Technique or, you know, cardio, you know, along with playing? Yes, but Alexander Technique is just like a small piece of it. Because Alexander Technique is really good for good posture and, and learning how to have good posture. Um, yoga, I found, for me, is the best because it really loosens me up and stretches me out. And you do get stronger with that. You have to be very careful about taxing your hands when you're already doing so much with your hands, you don't want to be. Oh, right. um, so any position that, um, like the downward dog, I don't know if you know that, but you know where your hands are flat and you're using your full weight on that, you have to be very careful. I can do it, but somebody else wouldn't be able to. But you can do it on your forearms and elbows. You can modify certain techniques so that you're not taxing your hands. Um, anything like volleyball, <laughs> um, that can be really dangerous for a musician. Um, and lifting weights is just not a, a good thing because you're building bulk and what we really need is flexibility. So I recommend TheraBands. They're those stretchy colored things, um, stretchy elastic bands. And you want to increase that rather than um, increasing weight. Um, that Those can be very good for, for strengthening. Um, but working with a, a physical therapist or, or a, a trainer is, is important so that you learn how to do things without hurting mm -hmm. yourself because I'm, I'm really good at hurting <laughs> myself right away. And then last question um, from Corey Barger. She she was asking, when you do 
end up having an injury, if you do, um, how do you find the right doctor, the right therapist, or the right practitioner? Very, very important question. You need to go, if you your insurance allows you to, to go to a performing arts medicine specialist or as close to that as you can. So there is an, um, now a website. It's PAMA, Performing Arts Medicine Association. And they have a referral service now. Um, it was in its infancy about 20, 30 years ago and now has really developed to um, you know, a really great platform. There's a lot of information out there online that you can find someone that's really not not if they're not a specialist at least they play an instrument or have seen a lot of musicians that's really important and then to make sure you get a diagnosis first because many of these injuries manifest themselves the same way but it could be originating somewhere else than what you think and then to go to a licensed physical therapist, a hand therapist, a shoulder therapist, to work through the issues before you go back to playing and then figuring out what might have done it from your playing while you're doing that. But um, if you don't have someone in your city, as I said, a sports medicine person who has some understanding of the body anatomy is is a good thing. Um, physiatrists, physical medicine specialists, PMNR, they call it, physical medicine and rehabilitation. That would be a good doctor to go to. Um, those are the people we're looking for. Not orthopedics, because they might, you know, immediately will say, okay, we got to do surgery. Um, some things are correctable with surgery. Most of our issues are soft tissue injuries and don't need anything major like that, but also they don't show up on standard medical tests. And so that's why people have always said, oh, you're musicians, yeah, you know, it's all in your head. So we need to go to somebody that gets that. Wow, this is really incredible information. I think a lot of people have some some habits to break in their practicing and, and some new habits to install. And I'm excited to uh, you know see how people listening to this can improve their musicianship, get better tone, and along the way, you know, prevent injuries. Is there anything that I miss that we we need to mention before we wrap up? I would really emphasize um watching for danger signals. So pain isn't the only indicator, but sluggishness or your fingers just don't want to do what they could pretty easily do two weeks ago. Um, fatigue could be one of the very first indicators of something that could become an issue. And also any numbness, numbness and tingling, that's a real red flag for some kind of nerve issue. And these things you really have to pay attention to. Don't ignore them. Don't you know belittle yourself, uh, blame yourself. Um, it's really important. We're we're athletes, and athletes, you know, they're off they're off the field, and it's as soon as they you know feel anything. So we have to have that mindset too. And we're playing in an orchestra, the show can go on without you, you know, it can. You don't want to jeopardize 
you know, months or years by ignoring something that's bothering you. Well, thank you so much. Is there somewhere that people, besides the book, the Playing Less Hurt, is there somewhere that people can learn more from you or maybe get in contact with you if they want to chat with you about this? Yeah. My website, janethorvath.com, has several videos, Mm -hmm. um, more information. There's a whole hearing video, but there's also other shorter ones that I've done that are on my website. And there's a way to contact me through my website. My Playing Less Hurt website needs major renovation. So I suggest going to janethorvath.com. Yeah. And there's lots of stuff that, that can help. Yeah. More, more information. There's a nice page on, on your website about this book and links and quotes. And people can get a lot out of coming to this website. So Janet, H-O-R-V-A-T-H dot com. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Janet. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much to Janet Horvath for coming on the podcast. If you have an idea about what topic I could cover on a future podcast, or if you have a good guest that would be really uh, insightful and uh, valuable you know, to speak to about auditions, please let me know. You can email me at hello at robnopper.com. If you want to record a question to be answered on a future episode, go to robnopper.com slash ask. And I would love it if you would go subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a review there and wish me luck with the imminent arrival of our daughter, Lily. All right. Thanks for listening. And I will see you in the next episode.